The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. This is Conspiranormal. All right, guys, welcome back to Conspiranormal. Uh, it's good to be back with you guys. And coming up at the end of the week that this is going to be posted on April 22nd, we've got our next Strange Realities online event. And that is with the guests that we have on tonight. And we're going to talk a little bit about that presentation and whatever other subjects we might want to get into uh, with the guests tonight. But I want to just briefly uh, describe what this is. Uh, we're going to be doing something, a presentation by Marco Azevedo, who's with us right now, Hello. Uh, called The Spark and the Vessel, Reverse Engineering the Flying Saucer Archetype. And we're going to be starting this on April 22nd, uh, Friday night at 8 p.m. Eastern time. And of course, um, if you guys are out there listening, two ways to do that. If you wanted to uh, to join in is either become a Patreon at $10 or above. That gets you automatically in. In fact, just today, as uh, the day we're recording this on the 12th, I just posted that up for Patreons. Um, and you guys get a Zoom link and you just go to it from there. The other way is that there we've got those on Eventbrite. If you don't want to become a conspiranormal patron, you just want to pay the ten the the ten dollars one time. That is also available as well, and that will be linked up to the show notes of this episode. So those are the ways that you can find that if you want to join us. But uh, Marco Azevedo is here with us. Marco, welcome to Conspiranormal. Thank you, guys. It's really great to be here. Um, yeah. This is actually the first time we've had you on the show, but not the first time that we've ever interacted. Um, right. You are uh, have been a, a big part of our online meetups uh, back when we were calling it the Mystic Crew back last mm -hmm. year. Still the Mystic and Crew, but it is. I was going to say, is it, is it the not Mystic the Mystic Crew? Okay. Well, yeah, we, I guess the Mystic Crew and the are uh, still the ten dollars patrons and in, invited. Special yes, yes, yes. That's uh, yeah. We, we, we've kind of combined the two, the two ideas. So, because um, the Mystic Crew started out as a sort of what, like almost like a private strange realities or kind of a yeah, Patreon strange yeah. realities. 
Yeah. So how it kind of started um, was during COVID or, you know, the beginning of COVID. Um, we decided we'd do like this big meetup in May of 2020. And we did this like, I think we were there for like six hours. Um, which mostly oh, that was, was like one. that was that just was Alan like, Greenfield wasn't Alan it? <laughs> Greenfield pontificating the entire time, and um, so we did I, that. I, think I missed that one, or maybe yeah, we did it, just it's recorded in. somewhere. Yeah, it's I've got yeah I've got it. It's not been released or anything, but I do have it. And um, we decided that we were going to start doing that for our patrons back at the beginning of last year, and so we started doing these uh, once every month for a while. And you've been involved with us uh, just hanging out. And then uh, others have too, like Chris Corey and David Metcalf, Stephanie Quick, and uh, a bunch of other people. Uh, Jennifer Each Campbell. one based around a, a single yeah. presentation in the same kind of format. Right. Yeah. Right. So we had the idea to start doing the presentations just as a fun thing mm-hmm. and just to kind of make it more a little less more like a meetup but then like we could have like the presentation and then everybody could hang out afterwards and then we decided uh beginning of this year we were just gonna start you know charging for these and really start right. doing them as a once a month yeah awesome. once a month thing and you've you've actually uh done one of these with us uh at one of the yep. hangouts but this which i guess is the kind of the precursor to this presentation yeah. So um, that was the beginning of my doom. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That right. was, um, and that's up, right? Is that still? Yeah. Available? Uh, anyone who becomes a, a patron, um, right, at the ten dollar and up level, can still access all of those as well. So you basically get like a hidden chapter of these. That yeah, there's right. a couple. There's a couple of those I don't have up. I think I do have yours up though. I had to go I, back and check, but they're I'm pretty sure yeah, they're they're just for they're just for patrons. I'm so. pretty sure, yeah. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure mine. It was up last time I saw it because um, okay. Actually, I did a show with uh, Barbara um, um, Fisher. Yeah, and I was starting to talk because I had dropped. I had uh, in a previous discussion, I had sort of hinted at this, uh, the idea of this whole project I've been working on. And then she was intrigued. And so then rather than sort of like go too far back, I actually just sent her the link to the, I think she, you know, yeah, here it is. Le- leveled okay. up and checked yeah. it out. And um, yeah, so that was, that was sort of like me telling her, well, this is, this is the, this is the germ of the idea that is now out of control. <laughs> what, it, well, the funny thing is it all really started with, um, I guess we can sort of start this way. I can be quick yeah. about the, the origin of this whole thing. I had um, posted something. Oh, and by the way, I love how this is all at the intersection of all of these different podcasts and, and, and presenters and communities. I mean, that's kind of like how my brain works. I listen to all of these different resources like your show and Barbara's show and Radio Misterioso and, and, you know, Facebook pages and um, my brain just starts associating things that I pick up from different sources and string them together and, and turn them into sort of a, an idea or a question, at least. Um, but um, I had posted a something on the Radio Mysterioso Facebook page um, about a particular UFO sighting that in its day was sort of like 
a momentary classic. It was a photograph that just sort of was everywhere for a little while. But then um, NICAP investigated and they ended up um, kind of shutting the files on that because they determined it was a hoax. And I'm talking about what became known as the Zanesville saucer, right? That mm-hmm. was um, this one of those kind of really amazing uh, daytime disc photographs. Um, most of which, I mean, there's a lot of those, not as many these days, but there's a, a whole host of those photographs from the 50s and 60s, especially black and white, you know, and you sort of tend to encounter them or, you know, my generation encountered them in these little paperbacks in the 60s and 70s on UFOs. And they were all just like amazing and terrifying and kind of like, whoa, what is that? Look at that thing. It's right there. It's over that house. And it looks so solid. And and then you get older and you think, well, that looks kind of fake. Or that I could tell you could fake something like that. Um, but still, they had this sort of power, you know, these, these daytime disc photos. Um, and there are three that are like my favorites. And one of them is... Um, the Zanesville um, saucer photograph. Um, and I just did a whole post on um, kind of falling into that rabbit hole in terms of, um, I think I wanted to find out where this place was. I somehow wanted to, I wanted to know where the house was. Not that I was going to you know, go there. It's in Ohio. I'm all the way over in Evanston, Illinois. But I like to, you know, find out where to me the these places where these kind of sightings quote unquote sightings whether they're hoax or not but um these places become associated in one's mind you know if you are into this material and especially historic material like that it just those are almost like places of power you know <laughs> whether it was actually a hoax or not it's sort of like i wanted to know if where that place was what else could I find out about that area? You know, was there something interesting about it? And um, I ended up finding the actual house on um, on Google Street View, and it sort of blew my mind. I was like, "There it is! That's that's the house. It looks different, um, but it sort of just made it real for me." whatever the actual providence of that image was. And then I just started doing, I just fell down a rabbit hole of doing research on that. And I found a bunch of files from the NICAP investigation, which was really interesting because there were, you know, they went, it was a thorough investigation. They they took pictures of the house from different angles, trying to reproduce the angles in the photographs and the, and the lighting times of day. And ultimately I think they determined that um, these are Polaroids, I think. And they had a, a series of numbers on the back and they determined that the order of that the pictures were taken in um, contradicted his narrative. And sort of like that, just from there, the whole thing just started falling apart for them. Anyway, they felt that they couldn't stick to the case because there was, it wasn't, it was now no longer credible because, because of this discrepancy. I still don't know what to think about all that. Um, there's something that nags at me about that, about that photograph. I can, I don't know. This is something weird. Um, I think the funniest thing about it is that Zanesville, which I don't know anything about aside from that photograph. Um, as I was doing research, it turned out that that was the birthplace of, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, Thomas Townsend Brown, which I've, 
has been, I'm pretty sure it's been discussed on your show. He was one of the founders of NICAP and, but he was also like a big name in um, the whole anti-gravity thing. He was one of the early anti-gravity um, technologists. Yeah. We might've talked with him when we did the show about NICAP with Jack Brewer back in uh, November. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I talked about him then. Yeah. Yeah. That's when he, that's right. He, he that's that what he did mention. Right. Yeah, Robert Townsend Brown. And also I think he's, he spoke about some connection between Brown and the CIA, which I can't remember the details of, but the, yeah, there was I don't a know. lot of, there was a lot of intelligence agency connections within ICAP. So yeah, not, not yeah. too surprising there. Yeah. I, not, you know, I don't know if it means anything, but I just thought it was fun that, you know, Zanesville was this, the side of this saucer uh, and also the, the birthplace of, of the, the Brown family. That was like their home. That was their hometown. And also the fact that he founded NICAP and NICAP ended up investigating it. Uh, it, it seems like if one pokes further, there might be some kind of something going on there, but I don't know. It may all be sheer coincidence, but um, that got a good response that post. And I think Serfiel asked me, because this is like when you guys started the, um, the Mystic Crew presentations. And I think Serfiel asked me to, to maybe do something on that. And what happened was I started to pull together that material. And then it just sort of intersected with this other line of thinking that I'd been on for a few years now, since after the whole... Um, Tic Tac, UAP, New York Times thing blew up. And then, <laughs> so when, after I put this together, the presentation, um, I almost felt like apologizing to Surfields. I'm like, yeah, no, this has almost nothing to do now with, with, <laughs> with um, the Zanesville saucer. It, it, it was, it was in there, but it was, it became yeah, much it all bigger relates. than that. Yeah. And I yeah, think I saw right. something like, I saw something in a raw form and, you know, with those, I was really encouraging people to take, yeah, these like ideas and like flesh them out more because I knew it could really be fleshed into something that'd be really interesting. So yeah, it it, it makes sense that it would go in, in a lot of different directions. Yeah. So basically, um, and that first presentation, if folks go check it out, um, it uh, it starts to lay the groundwork of some um, thinking of mine that started, like I said, right after the uh, the um, New York Times revelations. The what was, it, what was that being called now? The soft um, disclosure, <laughs> soft disclosure. Um, when that happened, I think everyone who's, who's been following this, everyone who's in the field, quote unquote, um, especially on the side of things that's not um, nuts and bolts, felt like something was off, like something was being um, a huge, well, basically the whole field was being, it felt like it was uh, being reset. The, the Pentagon was finally saying, okay, we're going to start talking about this, but we're going to own the narrative. And so forget all this other stuff. You know, it's now about these little tiny things mm -hmm. that we can't explain, but that look, they're so small and, and they're just like in the, in the crosshairs of our, you know, um, fantastic military technology it's sort of like a a reduction of all of the wonder right that that the phenomenon had offered up until that point and that's i mean that 
that's still there for, pe- for people who choose to look, but they seem to be reframing the, the narrative. And right around that time, speaking of reframing, I read the book, Reframing the Debate. Yeah, that's a great book. It's a fantastic book. I feel like yeah. that book was ground zero for me in terms of some really, um, really good, really um, resourceful um, starting points to look at the phenomenon. Yeah, I did a, I did a couple of shows just devoted to that book. Yeah, yeah. Because there were so many, so many authors that contributed to it. I talked to at least maybe more than half of them that were yep. part of that book. And yeah, the folks who contributed to that book have all, I mean, I've continued to follow them. I've, I've met some of them. I, it, they formed this sort of the core of this community that you guys are in and that um, I feel lucky enough to sort of like um, come, you know, come into. Um, but one of the things that I thought was really great about that book was that it offered a way into the phenomenon that was personal, that yes, right. there's, there's decades and decades of examining this phenomenon um, with calipers, right. With um, you know, measuring things, taking a scientific approach, um, a sort of a data scientist approach. Um, and that's all super po- important. And, you know, it's, it's important that that continues. But um, one of the reasons that Jacques Vallée is one of my favorite figures in all this is that he takes that approach. And yet he says to this day, right? What was that um, Wired interview? How many years has he been looking at this since the 50s? And he still doesn't know what it is. He has some insights about what it might be about, but he really doesn't know what it is. And I think that that's that, like, that is the position that one, that one starts with. And then, you know, when you read, like you take you take that book and you read um, the essays by uh, Mike Cleland, um, other experiencers, um, Greg Bishop, who's um, hugely influential on my on how I think about this phenomenon as something that um, seems real, overlaps with the unreal and is essentially something that human beings can't process. And so they have to come up with some way of processing it, um, which involves a narrative of some kind or another, because that's, that's all we can do as human beings. And this thing seems so far beyond, so far beyond our, our normal wiring. Um, so all of those things really started me off on kind of pushed me into the next level of this. I mean, I've always followed this because it was fun. I've always been an enthusiast of, of, of the paranormal, of UFOs, of Bigfoot. Well, more so now than, than, than when I was younger. Um, but it's not been my like professional bailiwick. It's just something that has been around since I was a kid. And, um, uh, I started listening to podcasts around this material around that time, 2017, 2016. And um, reading that book made me realize that many people can have a valid perspective 
on the on the UFO question or the the question of this phenomenon, whatever it is, you know, right. it could be UFOs, it could be. There's lots of different things. Um, and so I started thinking about my own life and like I started thinking back to where I encountered all this stuff. I mean, you know, in culture, not not in reality. Although I, you know, when you think about it, I'm like a lot of people who think about it and go, well, actually there was that time <laughs> that I saw whatever. But I started out with just my own life in my generation. And this is something that's in that first presentation. Uh, I was born in 61. Um, I have a vague recollection of the Kennedy assassination. Just, I just saw it as a striped box on wheels pulled by a horse. That was like my image that burned into my memory probably when I was about three years old. Oh, like the casket? Yeah. Yep. Yep. Right. The, the, the casket procession. Um, and so that's how my earliest memories were all these sort of like, just sort of like, I, it's sort of iconographic. It's like this visual... Uh, simple pictures that have just sort of burned themselves into my brain. And, um, you know, in that era also, I sort of, I watched television all the time. My parents had a little black and white set. Um, and things like the various um, network logos burned themselves into my brain. The Pan Am logo, you know, uh, my parents took me to the um, World's Fair and things like the, um, the Globe, with the orbits around it. Um, this is the New York, um, the Queens, New York, um, 64, 65 World's Fair. Okay, yeah. That's what I was thinking the year was, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, here I am, you know, three, four, five years old, and my brain is getting filled with all of these standalone images and icons. And I don't know what they are. You know, it's like, it's the idea of branding, of course, is, beyond me as a kid. Um, I know that some images uh, are connected to things that I want, you know, like a toy or like a toy company, you know, Mattel or what's the one that you can retrace over and over again. Anyway, um, that's when I kind of became aware of things like logos and symbols. Oh, and I, you know, I saw things like the uh, uh, nuclear fallout shelter symbols mm -hmm. that were all over the city. Um, and they're still around. You can still find them. They're all like faded, right. but they're still there. And I used to wonder, what, are, what is that? You know, and that all seemed to be of a similar language. You know, the stuff that I would see on TV, stuff I'd see on the street. And I think I was always intrigued by it because I knew it meant something, but it wasn't part of the daily communication with my parents or my friends. It was just sort of there. It's in the environment. And also, you know, the other classic one is um, the test pattern on a TV that had a, <laughs> that really left an impression on me because this idea of the television shutting off, like, you know, you can watch shows forever and ever and ever. And then at a certain hour at night, it all finished, it all wrapped up. Someone would play the, the anthem, you'd see the flag, and then you'd see this like mysterious mandala like thing, you know? And it was, it had, there was a mystery to me with that. Yeah, I still um, remember. I, I I even remember all that. You know, like that was still going on when I was a kid. Yeah. You know, if and, you didn't have if you didn't have cable, just the stuff shut off at a at a certain point. And you know, thinking back to that, I I associate that period of my life with 
I guess on one level, I associated it with things like Lost, like the shows that I watched, Lost in Space, Outer Limits. Um, so the Flying Saucer is definitely a part of that iconographic language, right? I associate it with that time. Um, and something that I've noticed, um, again, being of my generation and, you know, having experienced like, the internet for the first time. I still remember what that was like. Um, I still remember what it was like when um, Steve Jobs demonstrated uh, the the uh, iPhone for the first time. And these were all like these sort of mind-blowing things that are really, really hard. It's hard to convey the feelings that you get when you first experience something like that. I think every generation has that. They have those experiences that kind of reset their brains, rewired them, mm -hmm. um, that are taken for granted by every following generation. And then over time, the original kind of WTF wonder of it is sort of, it just fades away and it just becomes another thing that, that you take for granted. And so thinking of it that way, I started wondering what, um, what was it like before things became cliche or be before things like, before the flying saucer became kind of almost like a visual joke? What was it like for people to, for real, to really see these things for the first time in that time? Um, what, was, what did it mean in the context of the era, which was right after World War II? And, and that's people seeing them through these photographs also, not just actual right. eyewitness right right there's there's eyewitness stuff and then there's the way it started getting seeded out in in the culture with with photographs and with uh, with illustrations um and also you know with with i'll you know i'll, I'll say it hoaxes um I, I don't know that anyone today is convinced that um the scout ship was a real flying saucer the adamski adamski photograph but the providence of that is really, really interesting, that it was a piece of hardware. Um, and as you guys know, that became kind of part of um, the DNA of, of that first presentation of mine. Do you think that some of that was more believable at the time because it was that imagery was so new? I mean, like the picture that the Zanesville picture and the Adamski stuff, like, I mean, now they look really silly and quaint to us, right? But at the time, people just did not know, like they'd never seen anything mm -hmm. like that. And I think, you know, we're we're spoiled by stuff like, I mean, starting with like Star Wars and how realistic special effects can be, right? You know, special effects were so pokey and bad in the fifties <laughs> that you know, just seeing that static image you could more convince somebody with a static image than you could with a moving image because right. even then I would have thought they would say, well, you know, right. You know, Ed would, you know, with the, with the, with the plates and set them <laughs> on a fire, you know, it's just, right. It just right. And they kind of jiggle. And right. Right. Yeah. It's see, see, that's the thing. It's um, it takes time for the, the, the human mind to process stuff. Maybe it might take a couple of generations. That's part of what I find really fascinating about this whole field. Like I once, you know, I'm a big James Bond fan. 
And I read somewhere in some book about Bond movies that um, one of the revolutionary things about the, the earliest Bond movies was their editing. They moved so fast. Now you look at like Dr. No or something and it's, it seems kind of clumsy and, you know, it doesn't move fast at all. Some people would say it's boring. It's right. people's perception of things just moves along and along and along. Like they'll say something like if, if, if a cinema audience from silent movie days, if they saw something like a James Bond movie, I mean, aside from the cult, the, just the visual cultural differences, they wouldn't simply not be able to process the narrative because it just moved so fast. And I thought that was, that was fascinating. How to, this, this subject just like balloons and gets, and gets, and gets so huge. Um, yeah. But you're saying that like the, the symbolism and iconography of the saucers fit into the like corporate and technological symbolic language of, of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, as I looked into it, that sort of caused me to come up with this idea of the um, American technological imaginal, which, you know, not that I am a, a completely versed expert on Jungian psychology and the idea of the imaginal as it's been developed by other writers after him. But, you know, basically, if you take the idea of of a daimonic reality, which is Harper's idea, which is basically the big conundrum that a lot of this phenomena seems to exist in this funny nether region, this liminal space between the material and the um, concrete and documentable and the human imagination, right? Um, Someone can come in and say, well, these are all just, they're just uh, dreams or fantasies or hallucinations. And you might almost be convinced until you read enough of these things and you realize, well, no, sometimes these things seem to leave traces. It's just sort of, it's just this, you know, bedeviling weird area where um, stuff sort of seems, you know, things seem to be real. And at the same time, they seem to not be real. And, um, you know, uh, the, the Joshua Cutchins um, and Tim, uh, Tim Renner's book on Bigfoot is like a perfect example of that. Something that I used to just dismiss as well. So what if there's some kind of relic ape running around the forest? It's a cool idea. I didn't think it was all that interesting. I, to me, it was like Bigfoot either is a lot of BS or it's real and not interesting because it's just a new animal. But, you know, reading a book like that, you realize, no, it's Bigfoot, like UFOs, like ghosts, like other things, just falls into this very strange zone of um, that just seems to, it just seems to exist to sort of push the human mind further along and to poke it and prod at it until it needs to, I don't know, evolve into a new perspective because our tools don't cover this kind of thing that sounds kind um, of like valet's uh control mechanism or something yeah. like that yeah valet keel um harper i to me those guys are like the the trinity it's like they they each have a little piece of this idea that seems to be the same idea um and that's really hard to get across to somebody who's just enmeshed in you know the purely material let's pull this back a little bit 
I started to talk about in that in that presentation the beginnings of the what I call the tech the American technological imaginal, different than the imaginal that psychologists, uh, cultural psychologists, write about, um, which usually involve myth and religion, traditions that are centuries old. My contention is that something started to change. Um, well, with all the more recent stuff I've been looking into, I think it all really started to change with the Enlightenment and the court of uh, Louis XIV. But before we get there, the, the first presentation was about American culture in the 20th century and the fact that starting from the 20s, um, when you had, that was the big blow up of the radio as a consumer item. What's interesting is I started looking into the history of radio. Radio did not have to launch itself as a consumer product. It could have remained um, something that, say, the Navy developed. You know, like radio could have simply have been technology for uh, ships to remain in contact with each other, right? Like a, a, a military tactical tool. Um, yeah, but mostly using Morse code, you know, yeah. Right, right, right. And, and somehow, in a way that parallels the development of the internet, something that, some, it kind of broke out of the military, you know, uh, laboratory and entered into the commercial space and became, and just took on a life of its own. And so this happened in the 1920s. Um, everyone started buying radios. Publishers started putting out magazines aimed at the radio buff market. And it seems like consumer, consumer, real American, modern American consumer culture kind of started there. And so did modern ideas of marketing, right? Because you had, you had private companies taking over, you had corporations taking over the technology of the radio and turning it around and trying to figure out how to make it a commodity. And then they came up with the idea of um, on-air commercials, and well, you know, you can imagine the whole thing just blew up and became and became something else, and it be, also became a vehicle for culture, for creativity, and for culture. The twenties also saw the beginning of science fiction. So Hugo Gernsback started out with radio magazines, but he also picked up on the fact that the radio and and that kind of technology. Um, captured the imagination of, of the American consumer in a particular way that involves the romantic imagination and like pulp fiction and stuff like that. And um, so he started another series of magazines that were about science and technology, but that also told thrilling stories of the future. But they were, you know, the, the language that all those magazines used, um, they had the same cover artists. Um, um, and the, to me, the great cover artist of that time, his name escapes me at the, at the moment, but uh, he created a lot of the iconic images that became um, iconic to science fiction. And I kind of think he, in a way, invented the classic flying saucer. Um, but that's just part of the story. The 20s, you had uh, radio, you had consumers beginning to understand technology on a, on a personal at-home level. 
um, before this technology was beyond the the canon and, and, and direct sort of involvement of, of, of the consumer or the person on the street, right? You had, um, you had telephones, you had, well, cars were, you know, definitely people had to learn something of how their car worked if they were going to buy a car. Um, but that wasn't quite as widespread as the radio became in those early years. Um, the whole tinker, I called it in that presentation, tinker, tinker culture. culture sort of started there, you know. Um, and if you look at these magazines, there's all these ads for, you know, take this uh, correspondence course and become uh, a technician or a repairman or something like that. You know, there was this, the whole beginning of this culture of people being enthralled by technology, but also having some kind of agency around it and being able to learn how it works. You know, like you could open the back of your radio and figure out how the tubes work and you could, you could take them to a repair shop if they, one of them blew out or you could do it yourself or you can start building your own radios. Um, that was something that didn't quite exist before. And then, you know, the depression hit that put a crimp in, in things for consumers. But what I find interesting is that at, at the end of all that, you have things like the, the world's fairs, which, you know, that still had those still put out that message that, you know, the future is going to be great. Um, we're going to have all these things for you. Life is going to be so much better. Um, your home is going to be completely different and you have some kind of agency. So there was a sort of melding of the popular imagination, scientific innovation, reality, fantasy, and all of these ideas being expressed and disseminated in magazines, publications, comic books, pulps, movies, serials. People would go to, to, to world's fairs and, and, and have that really drilled into that the future is going to be fantastic, right? Um, and all of that just comes to a point where there's World War II and then the war ends because there's something called the atom bomb. And suddenly here's this, here's the fruition of a, a whole ton of this innovation. But now there's this question like, wait, I thought life was supposed to be great. And now it's like, will there be life after 1945, you know? And again, you know, getting back to this idea of experiences that are hard to, to um, convey, I started doing research on how Americans processed the bomb after, after it happened. Yeah, that's pretty symbolic as well. You know, it's amazing to think about the fact that nowadays when we think about the end of World War II, you just imagine, you, you know, the, the images that come to mind are the sailor kissing the nurse in Times Square, right? The jubilation, right? But in doing research after that, when was it? Was it July of 45? Um, August of 45. Yeah, yeah. When, when Hiroshima happened, Hiroshima, and then Nagasaki, people were like in shock. For like a month after that, all the newspapers and magazines, even like women's McCall's or something, I forget what, what, which magazines, they were all filled with letters and articles and debates about, well, what now? People were terrified because they were like, we won the war, but what does that victory mean? because this is a whole new world we're suddenly in. And what happened to Japan 
could very conceivably happen to us. And eventually, you know, the way American culture works and the way, you know, marketing works and with, you know, with initiatives from the government, eventually everyone sort of, <laughs> they were able to sort of sublimate all of their terror. And it was always there underneath it all. But the narrative of, you know, exceptional America and this amazing future in the American dream and suburban culture that, you know, that rode high, but underneath it was that was still that that half buried terror of well, this could all go away like in an instant, right? And I think that the UFO, and of course, this is not this is, doesn't start with me. I mean, the amazing thing is that uh, Carl Jung was around at that time. We were kind of lucky in a way that he was around in that era to process that stuff. Um, have you guys read the, uh, Jung's book on flying saucers? It came out in the late fifties, I think. I started really reading that after I did that first, uh, presentation and I was somewhat a little bit disheartened because I was like, oh my God, all this stuff that I'm thinking about, he, 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 I mean, he wrote about a lot of that stuff, like the, the, the psychological import of the flying saucer. He wrote about that stuff back as it was happening. Um, and he was starting to get into things like, why is it circular? Because it's sort of a mandala. It's a symbol of, um, it's a symbol of wholeness and unity. And that was a chunk of where I was already heading with, with my thinking and my investigation. So that first presentation really was about American culture, post-war, and the sort of zeitgeist where the flying saucer and um, consumer tinker culture, they're all part of the same sort of continuum, this, this sort of this imaginal, as, as I call it, um, because it encompassed everything from, you know, hard reality, something that you could build in your um, garage, to something completely far out that you would see in Fate magazine. It was all part of the same sort of continuum. Um, and I think that all sort of started to collapse um, as we headed into the, as we headed into the sixties. Um, I think one reason was the miniaturization and, and, you know, the birth of the transistor and technology started becoming opaque. It started getting to the point where folks no longer had a grasp, an intuitive grasp of what was going on inside of their devices. And now that's like, I mean, that's, that's absolutely the case. We, you know, all of our devices are these little black mirror brick things and we have no idea what, I mean, it's wafer thin now anyway. We have no concept of what goes on in those, in our devices and how they connect to the, the wider world. And another thing that happened while that was going on was that the, I call it infrastructure, the infrastructure of technology used to be visible and then it sort of went away. Everything got the, the, the user interface, mm -hmm. the whole idea of the user interface smoothed over or was supposed to smooth over um, anything that felt alien or too technological to, 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 um, 
to handle. So this is why we no longer have things like uh, a, um, uh, what do you call it? The, the, um, the TV signal, the, um, the test pattern. Yeah. The test pattern is something that, you know, it was almost like a blip. It was basically sort of like the, the seams of the, of, of the industry and the, and this sort of early technology of television showing. Right. Um, now you wouldn't see something like that. It would be almost like going to a printing house and taking a sheet of a book or a magazine that's in the middle of being printed. And you look at the edges of it and you see all of the registration marks. Well, all that gets trimmed away in the final product, right? Um, the, the, um, the test pattern was sort of the same thing. It was still around for people to see and wonder about because that was television in its infancy. But now media is slick and shiny and the seams don't show. And, you know, they're not supposed to because they're, you're supposed to have a, a seamless experience so that you can make your purchases. And <laughs> it sounds like you're saying that the, uh, that our technology is becoming as mysterious as those saucers were. And like the Zanesville saucer is kind of like this slick, yeah. dark, shiny object without any guts in it. Yeah, no, it's, I, 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 that's, yeah, that's basically what, what I've been seeing. Um, and it goes along with the narrative that's that's been happening, uh, the way it's changed. Um, in the early days, when people met aliens, they were friendly space brothers, right? You had contactees that evolved or degenerated into abductees. And the friendly, you know, godlike big brother aliens sort of morphing into this more sinister more alien presence of, of the greys. Yeah, so there was a definite shift in the seventies. Yep. And yep. into the eighties. Yep. It's, it's sort of, you know, I, I can't make the, I can't make the claim that this is absolutely related, but it's, there seems to be an overall shift in zeitgeist that shows up in different ways. It shows up in the way that people experienced UFOs and alien encounters and it sort of reflects what was going on with consumer technology. It's sort of consumer technology left that realm of whimsy and wonder, and it just sort of became a conveyance for media, right? All phones look the same. It's like, you know, let's be real. Like you put an iPhone next to um, a, a Pixel next to some Android phone, and unless the skins are slightly different colors, they're exactly, I mean, they're essentially the same product. Yeah. The design is the same. Everything. Yeah. Yep. Looks, the like fit, the, looks like the monolith. Yep. It looks like the monolith. Um, and as people have been saying, uh, I think so, I heard someone say this on, on Barbara Fisher's show. It's sort of like, um, it's become mysterious. It's like the, the, there's the black mirror and it's like a scrying surface. It's like, there's a certain opacity to it. It's, it's like that, Everything under the surface of that piece of glass is, is sort of a mystery. New Bang took you on a journey of hip-hop and sonic through the perilous valley of the chains. Now hear the sounds of the surf-inspired ultimate Tiki Beats. All streaming platforms and digital stores. 
limited edition cassette of merchandise available on Bandcamp at newbanghiphop.bandcamp.com. Ultimate TV Beats Breaks. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. But then you look back at the 50s and it's like every car looked different from every other car. You know, it's like some had wings, some had, uh, they, they came in all these crazy colors. And that was true of like all of consumer culture. It was all about, color and choice and imagination and, and everything over time just sort of like reduced. yeah if you look at uh, some you know people from another country they will say that and having been in the past married to someone that was from another country and their relatives saying everything in the united states looks the same yeah. now you know but but you're right i mean in the 50s 60s you didn't have that you had a lot of variety Yep. And now it's just, you know, McDonald's and Burger King and KFC. One big shopping center. <laughs> it's, it's all, lot. you know, it's all the same. And, right, right. You know, there, there's just, the, there's this, there's this uniformity, but it yeah. did not, it did not used to be that way. Right. And the same thing happened with the UFOs. <laughs> I mean, you know, look at those charts that used to be put out by, um, and the occupants, and the occupants of the UFOs. Yep. Yeah. It's yeah, like, like such variety you know <laughs> yep i mean and and now when people when people think of the word alien the first thing that comes to their mind are, are the grays you know they but, are featureless essentially yeah but yep basically before before that you you had many different kinds of aliens yeah there's a, and, there's a nice little chart that lays that out you know it's got all all of them on it mm-hmm. i mean it's it's look at the covers of pulps you know it's like yeah. Imagination was rampant. The people were, you know, artists were coming up with all sorts of different kinds of, of aliens. Um, and that was kind of reflected in what people apparently experienced uh, for real. Right. Um, but no, now it's everything's reduced to um, these, these very monolithic icons, the alien, um, the Tic Tac, uh, the light, mm-hmm. you know, just uh, UFOs are just pinpoints of light now i mean so I'm this is all broadly. like our, it, because it's all of our modern technological mm-hmm. imaginal is this sleek right occulted hidden mm-hmm. under the surface kind of thing right and if you ever see a video with some amazing looking ufo your brain now instantly says cgi someone created right. that thing Yeah, I was going to bring that point up when you were talking about the how special effects has spoiled us like now that really has because whenever you see now the opposite is now true because whenever you see the purported fantastic UFO evidence, people are like, well, that can be done with a computer now. So you can't you 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 can't believe it. Right. 
This is actually, that reminds me of something funny, which is that, um, oh, uh, remember when, uh, what's his name, Blink82, was on um, the Rogan show? Yeah. And that was kind of a... Tom DeLong. Tom DeLong. Yeah. And that was a threshold moment. That seemed like the beginning of the end of, of, um, of, of To the Stars because it was so criticized, you know, his appearance on there. Um, yeah. It was, it was a shit show. Yeah. And, um, but there was one thing that I thought was interesting, which was uh, he told, he told them about, oh, they were talking about, uh, oh gosh, the, the, tri- the triangular UFOs, but the, you know, the one that's supposedly the military um, reverse engineered. Um, the, the, like the Aurora or something like that. Yeah. It yeah. has a, it escapes me now, but there's a, there's, it's a series of letters. Um, but you know what I mean? It's the black triangle with the lights on the corners yeah, and the yeah. one big light in the middle. I mean, it's so rigid, this image, right? And um, DeLong was saying, oh yeah, I mean, we've got, there's videos of this stuff. Um, here, just Google whatever the RT5. I don't know. I can't remember what the name of the thing was. And you hear Rogan, <laughs> typing and he's watching it and he's like man if i saw that shit in the movie i would ask for my money back because it was he thought it looks totally fake yeah i remember that yeah and i know the piece of video he's talking about you just see this sort of triangle and the light in the middle suddenly becomes a sphere of light and then it flashes and then it's gone right he thought that looked bad but to him it was bad special effects and so it was unconvincing I actually looked at that video and I thought, you know, that effect almost argues for maybe an authenticity because they didn't go overboard with the CGI. You know, it was mm. kind of just weird. It was just like this ball of light, bunk, thing just disappears. And I'm thinking maybe that's how the principle of something like that actually works. You know, maybe, it does, maybe just maybe it doesn't look like something cool, like something out of a George Lucas film um anyway it doesn't look too over the top it doesn't look too over the top and it looks kind of it looks a little uncanny right so it has a it's a little mysterious in the way that you know kind of like the the zanesville saucers a little mysterious um but yeah it's it's our our technology and our um popular culture has kind of really muddied the waters in a way in terms of how we process this stuff well, I, I, I wanted to hit the, a point real quick when you were talking about the atomic bomb and mm-hmm. and all about that. Um, the flying saucer mythology really fed into that fear too. Like it was a way. It seemed like it was a way to cope with that fear yeah. because all the contactee stuff was always about. Oh, well, you know, we're watching you and we want to make sure that you don't blow yourself up. We want to make sure you don't blow us up. Right. You know, that it was all the, the but like you said, the benevolent spa- space brothers. Right. And uh, after a while, that all kind of just went away. And it seems yeah. like there's now in some of these UFO encounters, there's a little bit more of the environmental stuff. Um the climate change stuff that goes into that now yeah. to some of those fears. So yeah, just those ideas of just like that, 
it it kind of reflects a great fear in a certain way and like they're going to save us and all these type of things and i think now we we look at some of the like the the crisis that we're in now in the world and you know there's definitely those people out there to be like well we hope that the aliens come down and save us cuz you always heard about the <laughs> yeah hope they come, the, come stop those those missile sites from activating yeah, yeah. right yeah well they'd always they say well they they came cover and over they the silos cover yeah. over the silos and disarm them and all this kind of stuff so yeah yeah there's definitely that the the friendly space brother there's some trace of it still left there somewhere. there's i think there's definitely there's still a through line and i think the thing that connects them both is simply where we are in human history um and that's this is another idea that's that's kicked into but the re- my research, which is that the flying saucer came along at a time unlike any other in history, um, which is why, to me, it's the first truly abstract archetype. When you think of archetypes in mythology or in the paranormal, um, they always refer to something, right? Um, the fae are people they're the gentry they're you know almost sort of a miniaturized uh nobility right um it's always some kind of reference even when you look at you know ancient reports of of what are taken to be ufos you know that they're related to ufos now um there's always some frame of reference uh ezekiel saw god on a throne and he saw chariot wheels, except they were spinning within themselves, which is like that language that tells you there's something that he experienced that could not be processed. But the language still refers to things that were familiar to culture at that time. Um, the UFO, except for really specific references like, you know, some of the pulp covers that, that we've been talking about, um, kind of in a way came out of nowhere. Um, And we know the provenance of the saucer idea, supposedly it was just, you know, a a misreading of um, Kenneth Arnold's description, right? That they skipped what he saw in 1947, skipped like saucers on a pond. And so Mm -hmm. the press picked up on saucer and so it became a saucer. And he was referring referring to the action Right. He wasn't referring that they looked like that, but right. he was referring to the action that they made. And that, yeah. that, that is a distinction that a lot of people don't really. Right. Remember. What's, fa- what's fascinating is that people started seeing saucers anyway, <laughs> and right. then photographing right. them. And, right. You know, so then you get back to the whole thing is this thing is, is it a tulpa? You know, what is it? Um, uh, but yeah, it was sort of like, but even like, what's a saucer? Why are people calling it a saucer? Because of the word that was used. Um, no one, no one thought that they were actual plates and, and, you know, cups and saucers. I mean, that's, it was just simply a word used to describe something that there was no other word for. Um, the fact that the UFO, the flying saucer more particularly, um, to me, what makes it really different from, from the Fae, from ghosts, from Bigfoot, from what have you. There is no, it doesn't really refer to anything else. It's a form that seemed to come out of nowhere. Um, 
but seemed so primed for people to embrace and to accept and that it um, charged everyone's imagination. And that also drove part of my investigation. Like, why? Why the saucers? Jung says it's because it's round and it's a mandala, which I accept as a partial explanation, but I kind of went beyond that in the sense that I really started trying to take this form apart. Like, where, what did humans, Americans in particular, what did they encounter in history that sort of seeded the impact of this form, this, this, this disc-like shape that everyone keeps seeing in the sky. Um, and that led to all sorts of new rabbit holes that I'm hoping I can do justice, some kind of justice to in that, in that presentation. It just goes in so many, in so many different directions. Um, but the other thing I was going to say about, um, uh, to your point, Adam, there is still a through line because it's still a fear. It's still about a fear. And I think it's because I, my theory is that the flying saucer is the, the daemon or the um, mythic archetype of the um, Anthropocene. Right. Mm-hmm. We've reached a point in history where the impact of humans on the planet is so great that we've become we've become the most influential force on the planet, on the weather, on the shape of the planet. Um, and certainly in terms of you know, seeding our own extinction with the starting with the bomb. Um, it may be a little too neat and pat, but uh, I think there's this really beautiful um, symmetry um, to human history. If you think of the bomb being that zero point, right? Like the birth of Christ was that sort of midpoint between that divides BC and AD. 1945, August 1945, to me is sort of like that point when you couldn't argue that we now live in the Anthropocene. Like we live in this whole new age where man's influence is so, is so out of bounds compared to man's influence before. And it was a gradual process, but at that point, it just went like that. Um, and one of my favorite sentences, I don't have the exact phrase in front of me, but one, um, one idea in Patrick Harper's Daimonic Reality that made me sort of sit up and take notice was, because um, he was comparing the Fae with the aliens. And there's so much literature saying they're the same thing, right? There's a lot of authors are coming at this idea that the aliens are simply the Fae in modern garb. But he pointed something out that I never thought of before. The Fae according to the Fae traditions, and even reflected in something like um, Lord of the Rings, the Fae are always leaving. There's this perpetual twilight idea associated with the Fae, that the world belonged to them, mankind came, and they were sort of 
exiting stage left. They were leaving for the, you know, the other lands, right? Sailing off like at the end of Lord of the Rings. Um, and when folk researchers spoke to people in the British Isles uh, who believed that there were fae, it was always like, oh yeah, you know, they're, they're still around, but there used to be a lot more, you know, the, my grandparents were talking about seeing them all the time and you see them less, but you still see them. But that's like a perpetual theme. It's always been the Fae are leaving. Yeah. It's interesting that you bring that up because I think W.T. Watson, I don't know if we, we talked about this, but he definitely mentions that in his book, the mysteries oh. and the mist book, the, the one we had on the, the previous episode, he mentions that. So yeah, it's interesting that you say that that's something that I've, uh, when I really sat down to think about it, I was like, yeah, that's, that's right. But check out the, the sort of symmetry of it. So the yeah. Fae are always leaving. The aliens are always coming. Right, right. The, the aliens are always some portent of some future. And I just thought that was fascinating because he hit that right on. The, I, I'd never really mm-hmm. made that. I'd never thought of that before. But Patrick Harper said that. And that I'm like, yep, <laughs> that that is like. Atom bomb, again, this may be pat and a little oversimplified, but if you think sort of atom bomb, middle of the 20th century, our technology from the ninth, from the enlightenment to the atom bomb point, just that was like a curve that went like this. And everything that, and everything before that was more in the realm of the iconography of myth and religion and things that referred to nature or, or simple technology. And after the bomb, Technology just became the gulf between human understanding and technology just became, ten, you know, tangentially wider and wider and wider. So now that there's this sort of alienation happening between us and technology um, and us and ourselves. And that's like that's the, that seems to be the heart of this huge malaise that's that's set in with 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 humanity post-war, post-World War Two, post-bomb. I see it. I see this thing where it's like, that's where we are now in the Anthropocene. Yeah. It's a new Um, beginning. It it reminds me of a lot of elements of creation myths about, you know, people Mm -hmm. call the dawning of nuclear (laughs) age, the opening of Pandora's box all the time. Yeah. Yeah. This idea that we have the destructive power of gods now. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, yeah. And, and our, that infrastructure I was talking about um, in our media, it's gone away. You don't really see it. Um, but in our landscape, it's, it's, it continues. Right. So it's sort of like um, when you think of the American landscape in the 19th century, almost up to world war II, um, it was essentially unchanged farmland, you know, um, folks farming their land crops, um, but then um, starting with the telephone and then with the car, with roads. Um, but then it really took off after World War II, the way our landscape has, in a sense, become more alien. Our landscape has almost become something that reflects what you used to see on pulp science fiction covers than, than anything else. Right? And the, um, the most untouched and... Uh, mystic what people think of as like a mystical landscape in the the united states too the the desert southwest were the places where they tested all those bombs right right um something really cool uh well kind of 
freaky but cool. Uh, if you look at New Mexico, right, like Trinity site and, and that whole surrounding part of the state, you can see on Google Maps, they're almost like mandalas. You see these, there's these huge circles that are in the landscape itself. And I'm not sure what they are. I mean, one of them is definitely the perimeter of the Trinity site. And I know that there's a fence actually there and it's only open part of the year. Um, but I started poking around other areas in New Mexico and it's like, there are these, you couldn't, you can't call them structures. They're more like just sort of an imprint. It's almost more like something in the texture of the land um, is, you know, clearly not natural. There are big circles. And to me, it's just, well, nothing mysterious. I think it has to do with, you know, bomb testing and stuff like that. But it, the way it sort of left its mark on the land is, is really interesting to me. As I come to the point where I'm going to pull this presentation together, that iconography of the simple circle is so prevalent in so much of this stuff. One thing that I noticed was a kind of toggling that happens in history between, between forms, right? Let me see if I can explain this. So the first aerial conveyances for human beings were balloons, right? Um, and this is a product of, again, um, the Enlightenment, but it goes into the Romantic period where the first aeronauts, um, and again, this is talking about in, uh, experiences that were incomprehensible to people at first. Um, the first balloonists really captured the imagination of Europeans, people in France, people in, in Great Britain. Um, and very quickly, a lot of people started um, getting into the whole thing of ballooning and creating their own balloons and going up. And eventually that mania kind of died down because the balloon was not very practical. <laughs> the balloon was still at the mercy of weather and air currents. Um, and actually, you know, a lot of tragic thing, a, a, a lot of tragedies happened because of that, because the humans that built balloons had very little control over them. They were at the mercy of all sorts of things. So while there was this big explosion of um, wonder and inspiration that, um, that the balloons or the, aer the aerostats, as they were called at the time, offered, it kind of went away, it kind of went under. But then they started coming back. And of course, the, um, the great uh, icon for that was the airship, the wave of 1897, right? Um, so what's different there? It's still a balloon. Most of the descriptions of these things were gas-filled balloons of some kind, but they were ships. They were, um, they were almost never round, right? They were usually what became the Zeppelin shape, you know? So here you've got this, and again, this is my visual mind just working things out iconogra iconographically. You start out with something round, but this round thing has no volition. It's, it floats in, in, in the atmosphere. Um, the next phase of that is the airship, which can be steered like a ship on the sea. 
And that means that now you have something that's got a trajectory. It's linear, right? So you, you go from rounded to sort of rod shaped. And then very quickly, it becomes reality. Uh, Zeppelins start being built, airship, real airships start being built to the point where they were um, a factor in World War One. Right. And then, as you said, like, yeah, there's, there's also the factor of control. So now we can control yeah. their movements. Whereas with a balloon, you really couldn't, you kind of drifted with the wind. Right. Right. So here's this sort of, you know, evolution from round to pointed and linear and rod-like, which has a trajectory, which can be controlled. And it's in line with things like um, rockets and missiles um, and things that you that you fire off from one location and you aim it and it lands in a different location, right? So um, you have this whole sensibility of shifting from um, something that's kind of random and organic and natural. And then you've, now you've got something that's very directed, um, that pierces space, that pierces, um, well, if it's a, if it's a, if it's a weapon, um, pierces its target and destroys its target. And as I'm like looking at this sort of segue of things, um, I'm realizing, oh gosh, I'm delving, I'm starting to get into the whole sexual symbolism thing of swords you know, and pentacles. Yep, swords and pentacles. And at a certain point, I just laughed and I thought, well, let me just keep going with this because actually there's something, there's something here beyond the purely sexual, but there's still that principle of the rod or the projectile or the sword versus um, something round and encompassing. Um, And I think it's really interesting that in the middle of the 20th century, when our realistic fears are based on ordnance coming in from enemy territory, right? Or planes um, or missiles, um, and the ultimate expression of that is, is the bomb. But the bomb is something new, right? The first visual that people get of the bomb is not the plane, is not a missile, is not a piece of ordnance. I mean, yeah, there, there were pictures of um, the two bombs, Fat Man, right, for Nagasaki, and I forget the name of the one that dropped on Hiroshima. Little boy. Little boy. But the icon of the, of the nuclear age was the mushroom cloud. Again, something that was almost beyond human ken. So here's this thing that sort of like grows. It almost seems like a life form. You know, I'm sure that the, the early uh, photographs and newsreels of bomb tests were hellifying. It's like, you know, they themselves must have been something that were really hard for the viewer to grasp at first, like what was going on. It was no, it took the realm of war outside of firing weapons at each other and this whole idea of trajectory and oh, something that's destroyed to this is something that almost seems to balloon out of nothing. It comes up out of the earth, right? It's like, it looks like a mushroom. It looks like a tree. Um, it almost looks like something alive. I think that that took war and destruction and immediately, even just visually, put it on a whole other almost mythical level because 
you could you, the human mind couldn't wrap itself around what they were what they were looking at. They hadn't seen anything like that before. Mushroom clouds have been documented in in art, in you know, people have reported them. I mean, an explosion just has to be big enough to create that kind of a dynamic system, right? Something that's that sort of like comes in the heat rises and it's sort of like it's uh, I forget the name of the structure, but it's sort of like a donut like structure that sort of um, explodes at the top and pulls into itself underneath. It's been seen and it's been there are paintings of big explosions from uh, the 17, 1800s that look exactly like a mushroom cloud. Um, there's this crazy stained glass window in one of the one of the Gothic churches in, in Great Britain. Oh gosh, I forget which one, which one it is. But it's a depiction of um, Sodom and Gomorrah. Mm-hmm. And it's in, really, it's, I'm going to have the image in the, in the show. It's crazy because it's a column of fragments of buildings, like what look like towers and castles, like rising in a column. And the top of the stained glass window is this big kind of cloud. And so the principle of some of that kind of level of destruction was sort of of understood, but it didn't become part of the popular imagination until 1945 when people opened up Life magazine or whatever and and saw these images of this crazy thing. Um, And I think that the UFO, the flying saucer, one of the reasons that it looked the way it did was it almost, it sort of reflects in a way this fear of people, this new fear of people that takes this very particular form. If you think about it, uh, if you take away the column and you just look at the part, the top part of the mushroom cloud, there's something almost saucer-like about it. The structure of it is very much like, you know, it, I mean, it's, it follows the principle of the growth of a tree and it follows the principle of how a mushroom grows but here is this thing, the flying saucer, that has seems to have its own um, volition and is sort of disconnected from the earth. It's like it's in the sky. It's sort of like, and this is where the whole idea of the spark in the vessel kind of comes from. The spark is historically is a force of nature that mankind or you know, a Western man went through a lot of effort to contain from, let's say, the time of the Enlightenment to the time of the bomb. It was a time when um, scientists began understanding that the greatest forces in the universe were kind of invisible. And they were trying to find ways of capturing it intellectually by, in terms of understanding, and at a certain point, physically capturing, right? Uh, during the Enlightenment, certain scientists in France, in Great Britain, or Scotland, I think, um, started isolating things that became ultimately understood as elements. One of the scientists, one of the intellectual figures of the Enlightenment in France who died during the Revolution was Lavoisier. I think that's how you pronounce it. And he basically discovered oxygen. There are paintings of Lavoisier with these big glass globes, which look like glass globes. They look empty, but they actually contain oxygen. So this idea of the human mind sort of isolating something that was invisible um, 
and try and beginning to understand it and naming it, right? So you started, mankind started isolating certain aspects of this sort of powerful invisible universe, the gases, oxygen. Um, I forget who it was in, uh, in Scotland, that Cavendish, I think, who um, discovered hydrogen, uh, which was super important to eventually to the whole dirigible um, airship field, right? Because you needed something that was lighter than, lighter than air. This was all happening in the Enlightenment. People were like, the science of the invisible. Um, scientists were beginning to understand things that were beyond the scope of normal human being to, to process and to understand or to even see in a lot of cases. So this idea of the spark in a vessel um, which also comes out of, I mean, it's an old idea. It comes out of alchemy. Uh, it comes out of certain parts of Kabbalah. Um, you know, the idea of a soul and the idea of the body, right? That's the spark. That's a vessel. But it became more and more important and more part of the process of science and industry and technology and understanding how the universe worked um, from the Enlightenment through the 1800s to the point where you've got um, Edison creating the light bulb, which became the first really iconic invention that captured that idea of the spark in a vessel. Um, I like to think of it as sort of like a technological version of a genie in a bottle. Here's this incredible power. And yet we've gotten to the point where we could sort of capture it and start to do things with it. Um, and once Edison captured the spark of electricity in a, in a light bulb, um, which interestingly enough became one of the first sort of symbolic abstract icons in popular culture, like from that point on, the idea of an idea became a light bulb, like the Eureka thing. It's like light bulb because everyone understood what that meant without saying it. It meant an idea so new that it lights everything up and hey, the first guy to do that was Edison. Um, but then that led quickly into scientists figuring out um, the structure of the atom, right? Because they didn't, they didn't quite understand electricity even after they had captured it in a light bulb. But very rapidly, scientists began to break that down and understand that, oh, um, we're talking about a flow of electrons and, oh, we're talking about atoms, which had been theorized since ancient times, but no one really knew what an atom was. And what's really crazy is that within the period of like 30 years, um, scientists went from thinking of the atom as some kind of minuscule portion of matter that involved an envelope of electrons to, I think, at Rutherford saying, well, it's not just electrons, there's a nucleus, to understanding what's in that nucleus. It's kind of crazy to think that in 1900, I don't think they had the idea of the electron orbit yet. But over the next few decades, they went from some kind of, the atom had electrons in it to the atom had an envelope of electrons to they're in orbits around the nucleus and 
at the same time, that jibed with what astronomers were learning about the structure of the universe, that we have, you know, the structure of the solar system, um, the discovery of galaxies, and that galaxies were circular, and they had like a, everything revolved around a core, so that there was a sense of what was invisible, or at least not visible to the naked eye, um, and not something that you can't really describe using metaphor anymore. Metaphor became kind of useless at this point. Um, so that something abstract like the idea of an atom with electrons revolving around a, a nucleus, which also um, reflected the solar system idea. All of these ideas came into popular consciousness all around the same time. And on the one hand, it meant that behind the scenes, scientists were making leaps and bounds so that you went from barely understanding what an atom was to within 30, 40 years, creating a nuclear weapon. And at the same time, in the popular imagination, you had the explanation of matter being made of these little bits with orbits. Oh, and by the way, space looks like that too. The popular imagination took all of that in. Um, it was all reinforced by science fiction, by these, you know, by radio magazines. Um, and I think a lot of that ended up seeding this this image that became that became the flying saucer. In the time that we have left, the presentation that you're going to give this is going to be um, an updated version of what you did before, but this is also going to have a lot more to it. Like you've added a lot to this. Yeah, I've a gone down a yeah. bunch of avenues. I've gone back to before it was all about American culture. Now I'm like. <laughs> now I'm starting out in the Enlightenment. Western um, culture as a whole, yeah. Western culture like, as right, a whole, yep. Right. And also taking up the question of like, well, what is, you know, what does the future have in store? You know, um, this, this flying saucer shape. I think it, this flying saucer form, that icon has, is starting to evolve into what we're, understanding as the structure of the galaxy and the black hole at its center. If you look at artists' depictions of those things, it, it just echoes, you know, some of these right. visual, all its visual iconography that came before. So the, the presentation will be a visual reflection of what I have been very clumsily trying to spring together in words. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to point out that you are an artist and a designer, and so that is going to help you tremendously. And it did on the previous presentation. It was it was yeah. really beautiful. The, the presentations and slides and um, how you designed everything that is going to help to tell this uh, story and narrative symbolically. So you know, mm -hmm. it really is a, a great interactive thing to to see. Yeah, it's um. It's, it's in a way a continuation of, of what I do for a living. I'm a graphic designer, but specifically um, I've worked in, in branding identity. And part of that process is simply to, you know, if you, you get a client who needs a new, they've got a new product or a new company uh, and they need some kind of image that works as a logo, something that's very simple, right? And an easy read and, and iconic, something that people remember. Even though... 
a brand identity is supposed to be really simple and streamlined like that. The idea is that it be it's a, that it's an icon that represents a whole range of associations that become the brand, right? Um, and so the process of brainstorming a brand, like the the first thing you do when you get an assignment like that, is you do research. Um, you find out what is it that what is that what is it that the client um, wants people to understand or envision about their product. Um, so then, you know, you get into all sorts of stuff, like what, what are the values of this product? What, what, you know, what, what will it touch on emotionally? Um, what kind of story does it echo that's probably already in a consumer's mind because that story has been there through mythology, through popular culture or anything like that. So, um, so yeah, so research is sort of like engineering an icon by starting with the past and sort of taking all of that and engineering an icon. I call this presentation reverse engineering an archetype. One, it's a play on the idea of reverse engineering alien technology. Um, but what I'm trying to do with this presentation is take this icon um, that no one person created and sort of running the process backwards, taking something that's a perfect image of something powerful. Um, so what's in its DNA? Why is it powerful? What's, what is so powerful about this simple form? And that's the process I went through. Um, and that's why I ended up back at the Enlightenment. <laughs> It's like, there's a lot of threads to follow. Well, I think we're really looking forward to this um, presentation. I think this is going to be great. Um, we're going to be doing this at the end, well, the end of the week that this comes out. So April 22nd at uh, 8 p.m. Um, Eastern time is when we're going to start. And just say Eastern time, just that's basic for anybody wherever you live, figure that out accordingly. But uh, as we said before, that's available on Eventbrite. I'll have the link up posted to this episode. But also the another good way to do it is to join our Patreon, which uh, you can become a $10 a month member and you just get access. So you don't have to pay again and again, and again through Eventbrite. So consider that. But uh, Marco, this has been awesome. You're going to stick around with us just for like a little short Patreon segment, but absolutely. Um, where can people find you? Where can people <laughs> find your work and what you do and all this, all this type of thing? Well, this is where I feel super lucky because I, I get to do a, a show like this um, alongside, you know, in the company of people who have written books and, or do their own podcasts or have blogs um, at the moment of speaking these words. Um, what I have is a, uh, is a, uh, a website address <laughs> and a plan for a blog. Um, and I, at some point I would love for it to evolve into a podcast, but you know, baby steps. Um, I'm a working dad and uh 
it's hard to find, you know, I don't have grants, so it's hard to find these little moments of time. But um, I do, my website will be luminosity.space. So think of the word luminosity, but, you know, portmanteaued with liminal. So luminosity.space is the URL. Um, I've started poking around on Twitter um, under that name. Um, but hopefully, hopefully, really soon and i can hear all the people uh that i've told this to in the last year or two laughing david metcalf and and barbara fisher and stephanie quick <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. i'm gonna have this blog i'm gonna have this site it is it is happening it's just happening very slowly but that's that's the url so watch that space top <laughs> project from marco as a video right. i wish oh, I, just... I wish i could put in an image of like some something that looks like something out of you know Remind black every- a black money lab or something. <laughs> Remind everyone what the uh, title of the presentation is. The title is The Spark and the Vessel, Reverse Engineering the Flying Saucer Archetype. Perfect. That was, whole, that was the whole thing, yeah. Perfect. I know, it's a little bit of a long one. But. And uh, Sergio, you can tell everybody where they could find us on our Patreon. If you want to join this mystic crew, you can head over to patreon.com slash conspiranormal. And for $10 and up, like we have beaten to death, you can uh, you have an open invitation to uh, these presentations every month. But uh, you also get the added benefits of the extra Patreon episode, like the one we're about to record with Marco and other transmissions from the uh, Center of Conspiranormalist Propaganda. Uh, for the $20 and up level, you get to join the Ancient Circle of Strange Realities and uh, get some cool T-shirts. That is uh, the extra special upper echelon of all of these uh, various secret societies that we are heading. Uh, that is at patreon.com slash conspiranormal. All right, guys, that's excellent. Uh, Join us over on the Patreon side. We're going to continue uh, with Marco Azevedo, and we will be back next week. We're going to do a paranoid style, so stay tuned for that on Conspiranormal. Consider becoming a Patreon at www.patreon.com slash conspiranormal or leave a one-time donation at conspiranormal.com. And please check out our YouTube channel, Conspiranormal Podcast. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.